Thomas Goodwin, one of the Puritans, said, The things of the gospel are depths. The things of the gospel are the deep things of God. And so we come to God's word today to learn more about the deep things of God. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 22. And also uh, put a bookmark in Genesis chapter 1 as well. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are a wonderful God. Because of your great love, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die, to be raised from the dead for us. And we thank you for that, God. We want to look at your word and focus on him this morning and look at the deep things of God. But Father, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes so that we can grasp and understand today what it means to be a human being made in your image. So would you help us now for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. We're still continuing our series today on the Trinity, which we've titled Deep Things, Delighting in the Triune God. But we're sticking with our series even though it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It should not surprise us that we're putting a pause on our series on the Trinity to talk about the sanctity of life. It shouldn't surprise us that we're continuing in our series on the Trinity because every sermon that you hear in this church should be about God and what he has done for us in the gospel. Today, we're just going to study the triune God from another angle, and we're going to use this really strange, obscure case law out of the book of Deuteronomy to get us started. Here's our big idea for today. To be a human being means to be the image of God. To be a human being, and all of you are, means to be the image of God. So look again at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That verse is the perfect verse For Sanctity of Life Sunday. Who knew a verse about building a house could be the very thing that we need to hear on Sanctity of Life Sunday? Who knew that a verse that has the word parapet in it is exactly what we need to hear today? Don't you use the word parapet in your daily conversations? Surely someone here has updated their status on Facebook and used the word parapet in a sentence. Well, let's get our contextual bearings here so we can unpack this verse. Moses is preaching a very long sermon in the book of Deuteronomy to the nation of Israel after they have come out of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They had just renewed their covenant with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. They heard the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're about to move into Canaan, the promised land. So Moses begins in the book of Deuteronomy to unpack what the Ten Commandments are and what they mean for the people of Israel. Three quick observations about the Ten Commandments. Literally in Hebrew, it's the Ten Words, not Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 4, Moses mentions this. He says, God has given us ten words. Notice, too, that God gave Israel ten words, and we as human beings have ten fingers. 
how he made it easy for us to remember his law, to remember his word. He made it easiest for, for us to remember his law, which is good. His law, which shows us that we are sinners, which is designed to drive us to see our need for Jesus, our Savior. It's right here, literally in our hands. Third observation, the book of Deuteronomy is not a haphazard collection of random and weird laws. I know you may think that as you read through it and think, is there any structure here? There is a very clear structure in the book of Deuteronomy. After Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he then gives this little uh, parentheses in between from chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 11. Then beginning in chapter 12, through chapter 25, Moses begins unpacking the Ten Commandments. Beginning in Deuteronomy 12, Moses starts explaining or contextualizing each of the Ten Commandments in order. So he starts with Commandment 1 in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and he starts explaining what it means that Yahweh is the Lord. And he goes one by one all the way through the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy chapter 12 all the way to Deuteronomy 25. He, In other words, what Moses is doing, he's explaining, here's how you apply the Ten Commandments, and you've got ten reminders on your finger, here's how you apply them, Israel, as you enter the promised land. Moses is giving them specific situations that may happen as they enter the promised land, and he says, here's how you apply the Ten Commandments. What's one of the first things that the people would have done as they entered Canaan? Remember, they've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. They've been camping in tents for the past 40 years. So the Israelite women have 40 years of better homes and gardens, magazines piling up. These women are ready to get out of the tent, out of the camping experience, and they want a house. These ladies want countertops to cook on. They want drawers to put the silverware in. One of the first things they would have done moving into the land is, let's get out of this tent. Let's build a house. And that's what our verse is talking about today. So Moses is unpacking the Ten Commandments throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And he comes to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, and gives the instructions for building a house. Here's what's fascinating. This obscure case law about building your house falls under the commandment, do not murder. So Moses is explaining what it means not to murder, what it means to keep the sixth commandment when he mentions this verse in Deuteronomy 22.8. Moses is explaining that if you are negligent, when you build your house, it is a form of murder. Moses' instructions are this. When you build your house, make sure you add a parapet to your roof. Now, what is a parapet? A parapet is a small fence or wall that they would build on top of their houses. They had flat rooftops back then, not like ours today, and they would go up to the top and set up chairs, and you would go tanning out there, and you'd have your small group over, and you would barbecue, and you would do all of this on top of your house. And so Moses says, when you build your house, make sure you put a little railing, a little fence, a little wall to let people know where the edge is so they don't fall off and die. Because if they do fall off and die and you didn't build the parapet, then you are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. Moses tells Israel that if they fail to build a parapet on the rooftops, when someone comes over and they fall and die, they are responsible for their de- death. Moses is saying, Israel, here's how you apply the sixth commandment. Do not murder. 
put a fence or a small wall around the top of your roof so people don't fall off. This obscure, strange law teaches us that the triune God values life. This verse teaches us that the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit value life. God is the creator after all, isn't he? He made this world and everything in it, so he has a vested interest in it, particularly the human beings that he made in his image. Now, let's turn to Genesis 1. We'll see where Moses explains how God created first man, Adam, and his wife, Eve. Genesis chapter 1, look at verses 26 through 28. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does this passage teach us about what it means to be human? It tells us that to be a human being is to be the image of God. It means that we bear the image of the triune God because the triune God is our creator. As human beings, we are the image of God. But that's not typically how we see humanity, is it? Especially in the church, we, we, we know we're sinners, so we call ourselves worms and we grovel and, and we think we're such terrible people and awful sinners. And it's true, we are sinners. We are. We're all born sinners and rebels against God. But we have value because he made us in his image. As the old saying with horrible grammar goes, God don't make no junk. We are all made in God's image. We are not junk. What does it mean that we are made in the image and likeness of God? First, let me give you a picture. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you think what? Wow, I look good today. You do that, don't you? Actually, we usually wake up and stumble to the bathroom and brush our teeth, and we think, wow, I look terrible. Then we take a shower and we fix ourselves up and then we look in the mirror and usually we like the way we look. Sometimes we have one of those days where our hair is just perfect and our outfit is awesome and some days we just stare at our reflection a little bit longer in the mirror than usual, don't we? I hope you have at least a few of those days. But the reflection that we see is not us. It's just a reflection of us. The real us is standing in front of the mirror. The real us has to get in the car. The real us goes to work. Our reflection does not do any of those things. That's what it means to be the image of God. We are just a reflection of him. We are not God. We just reflect him. So keep that picture in mind as we talk about what Moses means when he says that we are human beings created in the image of God. The Hebrew phrases here, in our image, in his own image, and in the image of God that Moses uses here in Genesis 1 could be rendered, let us make man as our image. 
And I think that's the better way to translate the Hebrew preposition there. Let us make man as our image. To be the image of God means that we are God's representatives in this world. That we live as human beings who are his representatives. And that's precisely the idea behind the Hebrew word image, selim. It was a a word used in the ancient Near East for models or statues or images or replicas. As a king conquered a land, he would go into that land and install statues of himself to let the people know there, hey, I'm the king and I am in charge of this place. And they would use that Hebrew word, selim. The statues were not the kings. They were just representatives of the king to let everyone know who was in charge. And you would not dare desecrate or vandalize or tag with some spray paint one of these images because that was paramount to desecrating the king himself. Think about what the implications there are for us as human beings, in what we do to other human beings. When we desecrate them and violate them, we're really doing it to the Creator. So the kings would make all kinds of shapes and images of their likeness displayed all over the land. Big statues, little ones that you could put on your mantle. They would be on coins. Little things that you could hang from your car mirror so you could be cool. All of these things were made. They were made of silver, gold, diamonds, ruby. Uh, Most often, clay images were used. It was kind of the modern-day equivalent to billboards or ads on the side of the road. The king wanted everyone in his kingdom to be reminded of who was in charge. It's the idea behind the Hebrew word image. So how does the triune God make his presence known in this world? He makes images, selim. He makes representatives called human beings. And how does he make them? He uses dirt. He uses clay. Why does God make Adam from clay? I think one of the reasons is to stress that we are fragile. Realize that God made Adam this way before sin entered the picture. We are, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, we are truly just jars of clay. We're easily broken. We're fragile, aren't we? Sharing the gospel with a young man a few weeks ago and we were talking about skateboarding, and he said he used to you know, do skateboarding a lot as a kid, and he said, I don't do that anymore. And I said, how come? And he said, I'm too old. I'm not getting on that thing. And I said, how old are you? And he said, 24. And I thought, if you are not getting on that skateboard, I am not for sure getting on that skateboard because I'm 40, even though I don't look it. There's something about being young and feeling invincible. But as you get older, you start to realize that you really are fragile, that you really are easily broken, that you really are just a jar of clay. So here we are as fragile human beings, and we have been placed here on the earth to represent the triune God, to represent our creator, to represent the sovereign Lord, to represent the king of kings. Every human being conceived in this world is a representative of God. You see, to be a human being means to be 
the image of God. It means to represent him, to image forth God. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Now, notice we aren't made in the image of a chimpanzee or a bird. We did not evolve. Why? Because those things are too small, too insignificant. But we're not even made in the likeness of Saturn or Jupiter or the universe because even those things are too small to describe who you are. You are the image of of God. That should floor you. You are not God, but you are the image of God. You are his representative in this world. So when you look into the mirror and you don't like what you see, what you see is the image of God, a created being made to represent the living God in this world. That kind of changes how you think about those wrinkles and those love handles. You have value, splendor, and worth precisely because the triune God made you. Now remember who Moses is writing to here in Genesis and Deuteronomy. A people who came out of 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. They saw images of Pharaoh all over the place in Egypt. And Moses writes to the people of Israel to tell them, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, made the heavens and the earth. And he made every single human being in this world, Pharaoh included. And the Pharaoh himself is made in the image of God. Every human being had the value and worth of a king, the king of kings, Jesus. Think about that. Every human being has the worth and value, not just of any emperor or queen or king, but the king of kings. That ought to change the way we treat each other. That ought to change the way we talk to each other. That ought to change the things that we say about each other. I was terribly convicted preparing this sermon. Every human being is the image of God. But how do we treat one another? Think about driving through that roundabout and think about when a representative of God doesn't drive through the roundabout the correct way. Think about being in the 20 items or less lane in the grocery store and a representative of God shows up with 100 grocery items and they're in line before you. What do we do? Do we think to ourselves, well, looky there, there's a representative of the triune God. There's a glorious image of God and they just cut me off in the roundabouts. They have such value and they are significant. Well, look, there's a glorious representative of the triune God and they're breaking grocery store etiquette, but they are royalty because they are made in God's image. Praise Jesus. We don't do that, do we? But we should. But you don't know my roommate, Pastor. You don't know my spouse. I don't need to. I have God's opinion. I have God's word. And he said that he made every human being in his image and therefore they have worth. Think about the way James challenges us in James chapter 3. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, 
and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How we treat one another, how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another shows whether or not we believe Moses in Genesis and in Deuteronomy. We should be very careful when we come to these passages that highlight the sanctity of human life. We should be very careful when we come to these passages that point out that abortion is wrong, and it is, but we should be very careful when we come to these passages that point out that abortion is wrong, and then we turn around and slander those who are pro-choice. Be very careful in coming to Scripture to uphold the value and the sanctity of human life, and then turn around and spew forth vitriol and hatred about people who support abortion or maybe even had an abortion. We value life here at Grace. We value all of life. Even those people who are pro-choice, they are made in the image of God. They have value and they have worth. Be very careful what you say about the liberal or conservative media. Be very careful what you say about politicians. Be very careful what you say about the president. Be very careful what you say about homosexuals because they are all made in the image of God. Do we stand up for truth? Absolutely. Do we say that abortion is wrong, that a homosexuality is wrong, that they are sin? Absolutely. But how we say it matters. The people, the human beings involved are made in God's image. They have value and they have significance and they need Jesus. And they need the gospel just as desperately as we do. To be a human being means to be the image of God. But that is not all there is to bearing God's image. He gave us a job to do on the earth. Moses tells us what our job description is as human beings in Genesis 1.28. He says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our job description as human beings, as image bearers, is to multiply, to make more image bearers and have dominion. God wants the whole earth full of representatives who represent him and exercise dominion. Here's what it means to have dominion. It means that we harness this world's potential and use its resources for our benefit. To have dominion is you, you harness this world's potential and you use it for your benefit or for your good. So you see a coffee plant and you pick the cherries off and you get the seed out and you roast it and you brew it and you enjoy it. That's having dominion. And if Chet Harder were here, he'd say amen. 
you cut down a tree and you shape it into a guitar and you add electronics and strings and you play music. That's having dominion. And if Chet Harder were here, he would say, Amen. As image bearers, we are called to represent God, and we do that by multiplying and having dominion. In short, have kids and enjoy creation. Have kids and enjoy creation. Who said that being a human being was boring? Have kids. Enjoy coffee, guitars, enjoy books, enjoy pizza, enjoy sunsets, enjoy the ocean, enjoy barbecue. You fill in the blank. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. To have kids and to enjoy God's creation. See, you exist to represent the triune God. Did you know that that's why you exist right now? Did you know that that's why you are breathing? Did you know that's why you got out of bed this morning? You were created by God to be his representative on the earth, and you do that by having kids and enjoying life. Yes, you were created for God's glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, as our mission statement says, to glorify and to enjoy God. But how you do that is by multiplying and having dominion, by having children and enjoying God's creation. You see, God wants his image, like those kings in the ancient Near East. God wants his image spread throughout the whole world so that his kingdom can be extended, so that people know that he's in charge. And it happens as we have kids and rule the earth. Think about what we could have accomplished as a human race if Adam and Eve had not sinned. Think about all the technology that we have in this world that we've come up with after Adam sinned, after sin entered the world. I saw this on Facebook the other day. Question, if someone from the 1950s suddenly appeared today, what would be the most difficult thing to explain to them about today? Answer, I possess a device a cell phone, in my pocket that is capable of accessing the entirety of information known to man. I use it to look at pictures of cats and get in arguments with strangers. We have created cell phones that can access enormous amounts of information and we look at pictures of cats and talk with strangers and argue with strangers on Facebook. And we do this after the fall. What could we have done as image bearers of God if sin had not entered the world? But there's the problem. Sin did enter the world. After Adam and Eve sinned, God told Adam that it would be hard, even painful, to enjoy creation because now he would have to deal with thorns and thistles in the ground. Now he would work the ground by the sweat of his brow, Genesis three seventeen and 19. And God told Eve that she would have pain in childbirth, Genesis three sixteen. So now, reproducing ourselves, multiplication, being fruitful, having kids now, after the fall and the sin of Adam. Now it involves pain. And all of the ladies said, but the Hebrew word for pain used in Genesis 3 isn't limited to physical pain. It also includes emotional and psychological pain. Having a kid, Moses says, is just the beginning of pain. And all the parents said, And all the parents of teenagers said, 
God, help me. Parents, sometimes that is the best and the only prayer that you can pray. The same word for pain that was used to describe childbirth, child-rearing, child-raising is used for Adam's pain in working the ground. You see, there is pain when the alarm clock goes off in the morning. There is pain as you stumble to the shower. But here's where understanding that you are an image-bearer of God can change how you get up in the morning to go to work, how you get up to raise your kids. You begin to see that it's not drudgery. It's you being a royal representative of the king of kings. Think about that. Going to work is having dominion over the earth. It's being his representative. You don't go to work just to get a paycheck to pay the bills. That's why most of us go to work, isn't it? But you were made to go to work. To be the way that God made you to be. To live the way he made you to live. To exercise dominion over the earth and to represent him. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. And you do that by having dominion over the earth. When you enjoy your leather shoes, you're having dominion over cows. When you enjoy your triple grande extra whipped cream mocha from Starbucks, you're having dominion over cows. When you enjoy your double-double cheeseburger from In-N-Out, you're having dominion over cows. And some of you will leave here today and you will be enjoying slices of bacon as you watch football. And you will be exercising dominion over pigs. And when you do all of the mundane things of life, you're having dominion. Your hard work, your Washing the dishes, you're raising kids, you're changing diapers is all a part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. If you understand that, that will change your tune when the alarm clock goes off in the morning. That will change your tune, stay-at-home moms, who wonder if what they're really doing matters. It does. It matters. You are doing what you are made to do. To image forth the triune God. To reflect God. To represent the triune God, your creator. But there's also a spiritual dimension to image bearing. We are called to multiply spiritually. Christian parents, your greatest calling as a parent is to raise your kids to know Jesus. And it's the greatest calling of the church. Spread the gospel message And to make disciples. And that's why you will hear us say these two things at grace often. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's our mission statement. That's why we exist as a church. And you'll also hear us say things like, we want to be busy about making disciple, making disciples. That's why we're doing Grace Seminary, because we're trying to multiply spiritually as well. We want to fill the whole earth with image bearers of God who love and value Jesus above all things because that's what the triune God wants. That's what our creator wants. That's why we exist. To see people come from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. To see them come to delight in the triune God. And to demonstrate that Jesus is the king of the universe. You see, we are called as image bearers to be like a statue that an old king in the ancient Near East would put in his lands. We are called to be living statues, if you will displayed all over the earth 
So that when people see us, we point to Jesus and we say, He is the King and I am His representative. Let me tell you about Him. We exist here, Grace, to ignite a passion. And every person, whatever color of skin they have, whatever their age is, every person, ignite a passion in them to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere they go and in every single thing that they do. We want to do that now and forever on the new earth. You see, to be a human being means to be the image of God, to image forth, to represent God. Richard Pratt says, I think the most comprehensive definition of image of God is this. Everything you are minus sin. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? To be made in the image of God? It's everything you are as a human being minus sin. Everything you are is the image of God, excluding the sin that you do. But sin has messed up this world, hasn't it? This world is broken. We're broken. We truly are jars of clay, not just because we're made from the dust of the earth. We're jars of clay who are cracked because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin broke this world, and Adam's sin broke you. And therefore, because sin entered this world, some of us can't have kids. We can't multiply. And we try, but we can't. Because sin entered the world, some of us aren't disciples yet, because God hasn't opened our eyes. Because if sin is in this world, some of us have really blown it. Maybe even had an abortion or murdered someone or abused someone. But there is grace and there is forgiveness for every single one of us. You must leave here today understanding that. There is grace to sustain you if you can't have any children. There is grace to open your eyes so that you can become a disciple of Jesus. There is grace to forgive you of everything. I mean everything that you have ever done. There is grace to forgive you of every thought that's ever crossed your mind, every word that's come out of your mouth, everything you've ever done with your hands, with your body, every motive that's ever driven, everything that you've thought, said, and done. There is grace to forgive you and to let you know that God, when he sees you, if you're a Christian, he does not see those things in your past. The only past that God sees when he looks at you, Christian, is the life that Jesus Christ lived over 2,000 years ago. The past that is yours, that makes up your identity, is the life that Jesus lived so long ago. We are made in the image of God. We are the image of God as human beings. But we do live in a fallen, broken world. Some of us realize that we need fixing, that we need to be made whole. And some of us realize that that only happens because of Jesus. That he lived a life that we could never live because we are sinners, because we are broken. He died the death that we all deserve because we are sinners, because we are broken. And he was raised from the dead so that we could have eternal life now and into eternity. But that can only be true for those of us who repent, turn from our sins, turn from living for ourselves, turn from worshiping the reflection in the mirror, and turning and trusting in Jesus. 
then we become the image bearers of God that we were originally made to be before Adam sinned. Every human being is an image bearer of God. Some remain enemies of God because of their rebellion. Some are clinging to Jesus as their only hope, and they have been adopted into God's family. But all human beings are image bearers of God. That's why Moses said to build a parapet on the roof of your house, because life matters. It matters if someone dies and you are negligent. Life matters. And that's why we celebrate life and preach sermons about the value of life on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And that's why we are gathering tonight to pray for the unborn, to pray for those who have been affected through abortion, and to encourage one of the ministries that we support here in Santa Maria, which is CareNet. So I encourage you, come back tonight. If you value life, if life matters to you, if you see that life matters to the Creator God who made us, then come back tonight at 6 o'clock in the chapel, in the Ed Building, across the parking lot, and let's pray for life and let's pack it out that we break the fire code and have to spill over into other rooms to be a human being means to be the image of god that's why we take a stand against abortion because at four weeks in the womb the human body is producing one million cells per second that's life That's image-bearing. And that's why we are against organizations like Planned Parenthood. That's why we value adoption and foster care. Because in 2011, for every adoption referral, Planned Parenthood performed 145 abortions. They receive half a billion dollars from taxpayers every year. Play your part in being an image bearer who protects the unborn image bearers by standing up against abortion, by adopting, and by becoming a foster parent. To be a human being means to be the image of God. And that's why we are against human trafficking and slavery and racism. Because every two minutes a child is sold into the sex market. Which means since I've been preaching, 15 little kids have been sold into the sex market. Because there are an estimated number of 20 to 30 million slaves still in the world today. It's not something far back in our past as a nation. It still exists. The average price of a slave in 1809 was $40,000. The price adjusted to today's value. Cost you $40,000 to purchase a slave in 1809. In 2009, the average price of a slave was $90. You could buy a human being. You could buy an image bearer of God for $90 in 2009. We are against racism too. Some of us may only hold that racism deep in our hearts, but we believe that God created people in the human race of every ethnicity and he loves them and no one is better than the other. In the cross, Jesus has united Jew and Gentile. Every year, between 600 and 800,000 human beings are trafficked across international borders and sold into some 
form of the slave markets. And every year between 14 and 17,000 human beings are trafficked into the U.S. and sold into various slave markets. To be a human being means to be the image of God, and that's why we celebrate life. That's why we are against abortion. That's why we are against human trafficking. That's why we are against racism, and that's why we are against words that come out of our mouths that we say about other human beings who are the image of God. Maybe you check off all these. You support You stand against abortion, you stand against human trafficking, you stand against racism. And maybe, like me, it's the words that come out of your mouth about other people and to other people that you need God's word to come and challenge you today. You see, all of us, I'm sure, say things about people at work, to people at work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Maybe you say things about people in this church Maybe you say things to people in this church that don't please the Lord. See, we're all challenged by God's word today. The hope of the gospel is that God forgives us. And we ask him to forgive us and to help us on our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so convicting to me especially, God. So many times words come out of my mouth that I say about other people or say to them that don't reflect that they are made in the image of God. And I'm sure there's many of us like that here today. Some people here today, Father, have been hurt through the pain of abortion. I pray that you would shower them with your grace and your mercy, that their identity is not in their past, but in Jesus' past, his perfect life. And that they would see that you don't see them as someone involved in that. You see them as someone covered with the righteousness of your son. Maybe someone's here who's abused someone. Maybe they need to come clean and figure out how to make things right. Maybe someone's been here and they've murdered someone. God, whatever it is, we know we're desperate for your grace. There may be people here, Father, who harbor racism deep down in their heart. And they excuse it and chalk it up to their generation, their culture that they were raised in. Would you open their eyes to see that it's blasphemous? God, would you convict us through your word this morning and then shower us with your grace and the good news of the gospel that we are your forgiven people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.